0: listener supported WNYC Studios
1: This is all of it. I'm Allison Stewart live from the WNYC Studios in Soho. Thank you for spending part of your day with us. I'm really grateful you're joining us today. On the show, we have an hour devoted to thrifting. Two experts will join us to discuss thrifting clothing and furniture, and we want to know your favorite secondhand and vintage shops that's coming up. Plus, we have live from Studio 5, Helado Negro, who will perform for us, and we'll talk about his forthcoming album, Phaser. That is our plan, so let's get this started with Beatlemania. 60 years ago tomorrow on February 7th, 1964, the Beatles landed at JFK. Two days later, John, Paul, George, and Ringo performed for the first time on The Ed Sullivan Show.
2: Now, yesterday and today, our theater's been jammed with newspapermen and hundreds of dogs from all over the nation, and these veterans agree with me that the city never has witnessed the excitement stirred by these youngsters from Liverpool who call themselves the Beatles. Now, tonight, you're going to twice be entertained by them right now and again on the second half of our show ladies and gentlemen, the Beatles
1: Drew 73 million viewers with 60% of the nation's televisions tuned into the show Beatlemania was rampant in the States Many say that performance forever changed American pop music and pop culture So to commemorate the 60th anniversary week of the Beatles arrival in New York City And that first performance on the Ed Sullivan Show Which is this Friday actually when to take your calls for memories We're joined by Ken Womack, a Beatles expert and professor at Monmouth University Hi Ken
3: Hey, how are you doing today?
1: Doing great. Listeners, get in on this conversation. Do you remember the Beatles' performance on The Ed Sullivan Show in 1964? What do you remember about the show and how did it made you feel? Did you fall into Beatlemania. What did you notice about how music changed in the country after the Beatles hit? Our phone lines are open. 212-433-9692. 212-433-WNYC. You can call in and join us on the air. You can also text to that number as well. 212-433-9692. Social media is available at all of it WNYC. Or maybe you are a Beatles fan. How do you think about how the Beatles changed pop music and pop culture? 212 433 9692, 212 433 WNYC. That's our phone number for calls and for texts. Okay, so let's get a little context going, Ken. Before the Beatles performed on Sullivan in the lead up to 1964, what was their reputation in England?
3: Well, in England, uh, they were in the deep throes of British Beatlemania since the Palladium show, certainly in October 1963. They had been all the rage. They had gone from a, a regional act earlier in the year to a truly national act. They were, quite frankly, making pots of money and creating new fans by the bushel every second. It was quite incredible. Um, George Martin, their producer in that year, had uh, number one songs or albums for 39 of the 52 weeks on their charts, which really gives you a sense of the level of domination that accrued over the year. And uh, their latest single, which was very explosive and certainly propelled them in England, was She Loves You. Mm -hmm. Uh, So they were they were on an incredible winning streak.
1: At that time, how does one go from being a regional act To being a nationwide phenom
3: well in that case um it was the power of television right there were a number of uh pop music shows that were uh in programming at that time on the bbc and other channels and that enabled the beatles to get truly national exposure they were a regional act, of course, because they started in Liverpool, which then and perhaps even now is considered sort of the, the northern backwaters of the country. Um, you know, the Scousers with their funny accents seemed even out of place in their home country. And so the Beatles were a bit of a tough scale, sell, given the classism uh, that has always existed mm-hmm. in the British Isles. But they broke through that barrier through this extraordinary music.
1: All right, so we've ascertained what was going on in the U.K. at the time. Let's talk about in the United States. What was the state of pop music before the Beatles penetrated the American market?
3: Well, there are a couple of interesting stories embedded in that question. One is, why weren't the Beatles infiltrating the American market already? Uh, Capitol Records, whom we all know, was a subsidiary at that time of EMI, which was the largest media group in the world. And Capitol had a vice president... uh, Davey Dexter, Jr., who thought the Beatles sound would not sell in America. And he continually rejects them across the year. Um, Smaller labels are able to license the Beatles, but they're not getting the big exposure. Well, thanks to all that energy we just talked about in England, mm-hmm. the uh, chairman of the EMI group, Sir Joseph Lockwood, the Beatles called him Sir Joe, uh, called up the president of Capitol Records, Alan Livingston, and said, it's over, you're putting the Beatles on. <laughs> uh, you're you're going to be released their new single, I Want to Hold Your Hand. And of course, that was the great lead up to this week's uh, uh, memorial and memories. But... Um, American music was very different, right? I mean, it uh there was the Beach Boys of course, mm-hmm. which were a vanguard of things to come, but you had a lot of the crooners, you had a lot of the pop idols, the sort of created um the creative artists, created artists mm-hmm. in the wake of the Payola scandal uh late 50s early 60s. So, there was a a kind of a, a period of uh I don't know how else to put it, but it was a softening of rock and roll, right? In the 1950s, you had Elvis with his hips, mm-hmm. and Little Richard and Chuck Berry. Um, in the early 1960s, there was a concerted effort to kind of mute that rebellious nature of rock and roll. But of course, the Beatles are gonna bring it roaring back.
1: My guest is Ken Womack, professor of English and popular music at Monmouth University, the author of many books about the Beatles. He hosts a podcast for the Beatles, about the Beatles, called Everything Fab Four. We're reflecting on the 60th anniversary of the Beatles performing at the Ed Sullivan Show. It's happening this Friday. Tomorrow is the anniversary of them touching down in New York. We've got full phone lines, as you can imagine. Let's talk to Patrick on seven, calling from Craigsmoor, New York. Hi, Patrick.
2: Hello. Um, I have an amusing story. Uh, My sisters and I were waiting to see the Beatles. I'm 71 years old, so I remember when they first came on. And uh, during their performance, my mom had a friend over who kept talking, and we really wanted to hear the Beatles. We asked her to please be quiet. My mother got mad and said, we'll just see where the Beatles are five years from now. (laughs) So it was something I always remembered, like the Beatles became the biggest thing that ever hit,
0: so just wanted to share it.
1: Thank you for calling in. <laughs> Let's talk to Bernadette from Dix Hill, Long Island. Hi, Bernadette. Hi, hi.
2: So my story is that I was 11, and my best friend's
0: dad worked for the Ed Sullivan Show, and we were supposed to go to the friends and family rehearsal on Saturday. And because of all the mania and everything, they canceled that. They wouldn't let us go. So I cried the whole night, the whole night before when I found out we weren't going to be going to the rehearsal. However, he did bring us back 8 by 10 glossies. That was fine by them. Wow. But unfortunately, my dad got mad at me one time and threw it away.
1: So I don't have it. <laughs> oh, that hurt. That hurt oh. me hearing that from you, Bernadette. Um, let's talk to Kate online, too, calling in from Larchmont. Kate you're on the air. Yes, Kate. Hi. Well, I
2: was 8 when the ni- on the night that it was on television and I was completely unaware of the Beatles and I was stunned to see the audience and and the teenagers and the the incredible hysteria. And the next day, I was even more stunned to walk onto the playground. And everyone, everyone had a big pin. And it said, I love Paul. I love Ringo. I love John. And I love no one. And I, 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 I realized I had, I had missed the boat, but it was, it was moving without me. And I caught up eventually, quicker than <laughs> I realized. But it was extraordinary.
1: Thank you so much for calling in. I want to get to Linda on line seven because she's going to bring me my next question for you, Ken. Linda, thanks for calling in. Oh, thank you. And you're going to put me on the
2: radio. You're on the air right now. <laughs> I think I am. Oh, wow. Uh, I remember watching Ed Sullivan. I was in fifth grade and. John F. Kennedy had been assassinated a few months prior and we were all really down and the Beatles came on and just lifted us out of our winter of depression. And I'll just never forget it. I'm a lifelong Beatles fan and I
1: still have their albums, the very first ones. I still love them so much. Linda, thank you for calling in. This brings me to my next question, Ken. President Kenny had been assassinated months before in November. How do you think about the Beatles' arrival and the morale of the United States.
3: I, you know, uh, this has been a, a very interesting historical debate for decades about is there any nexus between the two? Um, I, I think there just has to be, right? Um, and simply because uh, the nation was was a smaller community, right? Not just in terms of population, but people lived more locally. You lived and mm. consorted with your neighbors. People met up on their front porches, etc. And um, there was a, a deep sense of, of sadness and mourning that was taking place. And suddenly, this other bright light comes along, as, as our listeners have been telling us just now, right? This paradigm shift has happened almost in the same moment. Uh, and the Beatles are bringing songs that are joyful and happy about love. And it's innocent love, right? I want to hold your hand. Uh, I saw her standing there. I, I To me, it's, um, it's patently obvious that, that that connection exists, time was different, right? There were only three channels in most networks, in most marketplaces, mm-hmm. right? Um, there were you know fewer of those kinds of distractions that we have 24 hours a day now in these days, right? There was no 24-hour sports, et cetera. People were just connected deeply. And so the blow uh, from that moment uh, in November 1963 extended and reverberated longer. Uh, there was an interesting poll that was done um, a few years back where it was, they compared the the power of the Kennedy assassination to 9/11 right which we all know mm. in our particularly here in the metro area how horrific that was um the the reverberations from the Kennedy assassination were not surprisingly much deeper right we just have more distractions in modern life it's not just a cliche it's a reality and mm. the beatles showing up so early on the cusp of of what had happened. I mean, they're on the radio by late December, not even a, barely a month after those horrible events in Dallas.
1: Let's talk about February 7th, the Beatles land at JFK. Who was there to greet them? Who was there to greet with them? We'll start there.
3: (laughs) Well, thousands and thousands of teenagers, right? Um, The radio stations had really been stimulating the the information about the arrival. There were a lot of very cheap or even free t-shirts given out so people had a reason uh, to go to JFK. Of course, uh, it had only just been renamed. It was formerly Idlewild Airport in the, in the wake of the assassination. And only 30, 40 days earlier they had renamed it. Um, but you know, there was a, truly a lot of excitement. These, these songs are now known on the radio, particularly in this region, back when radio was very regionalized, uh, the New York City region was just ablaze with with Beatles music. Um, So people are very quickly learning all of these songs that have existed since, uh, you know, the early spring in in England. But anyway, there were tons of folks there and uh, absolutely excited. And of course, back in those days, you could get near the tarmac, right? (laughs) Right.
1: (laughs) Let's actually listen to a news clip from the day that the Beatles landed, and we can talk about it on the other side.
2: There are rumors around that this is Britain's revenge for the Boston Tea Party. 3,000 screaming teenagers are at New York's Kennedy Airport to greet, you guessed it, the Beatles. This rock and roll group has taken over as the kingpins of musical appreciation among the younger element. Some music critics call their harmony unmistakably diatonic. Others say it's pandiatomic. Parents say it's just plain pandemonium. Their first meeting with the American press brings forth an interview laced with quips and humor. You'd laugh, too, with a gross of $17 million last year. New York City cops are hard-pressed protecting the Beatles at their hotel. On every
3: side, there is hero-worship that recalls the heydays of Elvis Presley and Frank Sinatra.
1: Ken, why was this a news event? (laughs)
3: <laughs> because it was a you know it was a paradigm shift we didn't have the phraseology for it or the words for it but this was a cataclysmic cultural moment and it's interesting that the, the broadcaster referred to Elvis and and the Bobby Soxers of the Sinatra era they had nothing on what was happening right um, and and your callers just now were fabulous talking about parents being upset, et cetera. You know, they were all just missing the paradigm shift. This huge change was happening. They weren't, even though they feared it themselves, I'm sure in their darker moments, going to be a flash in the pan. This was big stuff.
1: We got a really interesting text. that says the Beatles gave a new generation of kids with war shock dads, someone who said, I love you. I want you. Let's have fun.
3: Really? You bet. And, you know, that was John Lennon's motivation, too. He was so tired of the war. And, of course, in England, the war was even bigger, if you can believe it or not, than in America, where, of course, they were bombing British oil um, and the Brits uh, had much to recover from. And it took longer, much longer to recover from it. So kids like John Lennon, who grew up you know, predominantly in the 50s, we're just a little tired of it. They wanted something sunnier to think about, they wanted brightness and light.
1: We're discussing the 60th anniversary week of the Beatles coming to JFK and then performing on The Ed Sullivan Show. My guest is Ken Womack, professor of English and popular music at Monmouth University and the author of many books about the Beatles. After the break, we'll take more of your calls and we'll speak to someone else who teaches the Beatles, a professor who teaches the Beatles. This is all of it. You are listening to all of it on WNYC. I'm Allison Stewart. We're reflecting on the 60th anniversary of the Beatles coming to New York City and performing on The Ed Sullivan Show. The official anniversary of the show performance is this Friday. We're also taking your calls with Ken Womack, professor of English and popular music at Monmouth University and the author of many books about the Beatles. He also hosts a Beatles podcast, Everything Fab Four. We have a colleague, actually, of you, someone else who's a, a professor. His name is David galatz called in. He works at Suffolk University. And, David, you teach a popular freshman seminar on the Beatles?
0: Yes, that's what they say, Allison. It is popular. <laughs> and uh, it's, it's a pleasure to join you all. And I've had the pleasure of of uh, of, uh, of having uh, uh, Professor Womack on, on my podcast, which I co-host with, uh, with Chachi Lapret up here in Boston and uh, have read many of his books and have seen him lecture. Um, and I will, you know, right away, compared to some of your other callers, I will out myself. I am not what they call a first-generation Beatles fan, but I tell my students I was the hippest six-month-old on February 9th, 1964. Uh, and um, and uh, if he doesn't mind, uh, actually, Professor Womack is a bit younger than I am. So I think the fact that we do what we do is another huge testament to the power of what the Beatles brought to the United States um, and to the rest of of global culture and and musically, Um, as well as, you know, not only their message, but um, everything about the paradigm shifts that they initiated um, are certainly food for uh, intellectual investigation and for uh, students to learn about. And so, um, yeah, students innocently will ask me if, if I saw them on television that day. And um, I think that the power of it being one evening, uh, well, it was several performances mm-hmm. on Sullivan, but that first time on one channel, as, as Ken was mentioning, unlike the Kennedy assassination being on every network television and being a longer grieving process, it was one place in one time, and which even outdid when we think about what happened five years later, the moon landing was Mm -hmm. all over all networks. This was just on one network. And that tight focus really sort of had all of those eyeballs there to understand what was going on. But as much as February 9th was very important, it may pale in comparison to February 10th and 11th, and every day after that up (laughs) until today, um, in terms of, of, of everything that had sort of, Compounded sort of geometrically after that, um, it's really uh, it's really quite amazing in that sense. And uh, you know, one example I, I tell my students: you had played the clip of of um, the newscast talking about the Beatles press conference at JFK, which we cover in class, which is also its own performance, even mm-hmm. compared to Sullivan and the music beforehand, where you know, the obsession about their hair and the length of their hair. And what does that mean? And basically, the American press trying to tell them, hey, you're going to grow up and get a haircut while you're here. And they say, no, no. And George quips in his perfect deadpan way, I just had one yesterday. Right. And they all agree that it's true. So I stop that film. And I tell my students, at the time, this is a young man who just got his hair cut. And that's what was really shocking to everyone and frightening some of them as well, right? Mm. Um, you know, I, Bruce Springsteen, when he reminisces about that night, would say, Well, I came down and I combed my hair forward after seeing the Beatles, and my dad oh, laughed and laughed and laughed. And then his dad was really mad because he didn't comb it back <laughs> <laughs> the next day. And so that was the first of one of those little statements of, you know, yeah. rebellion and self definition. And it, it crossed so many different levels of society, and 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 uh, and gender and race, and and um, you know it's still it's still with us. You know, I'll I'll just I'll, I'll I'll steal or borrow a quote from Rolling Stone years ago, saying that every generation gets the Beatles that it needs, and that's yeah. true. That mm. they are what we would say is is equipment for living. If um, mm-hmm. uh, Professor Womack doesn't mind me quoting Kenneth Burke, an old uh, literary scholar. So um, <laughs> it's, it's always a great it's always a great time to stop and, and to really and to really reflect upon these things, especially in light of the Grammys last weekend where the Beatles did win an award for video yeah. of the year. So.
1: David, you covered uh, soup to nuts. You got us from 1963 to, to Sunday <laughs> night. Thank you so much for calling in, Dave Gallant. Um I want to go for a little trivia with you, Ken. There was an illness Uh-oh. going on in the band at the time. Is that true?
3: It is, well, it is true. George was quite sick. Uh, he was mm. quite ill. He would miss the uh, the Saturday uh, photo shoot on the edges of Central Park. In fact, there's quite a poignant shot of the three Well Beatles um, with the backdrop of Central Park and the Dakota off in the distance, which of course would be mm. John's future home. Um, and it's, it's quite poignant. But yeah, there, George was quite ill. There had to be a stand-in during the rehearsals. Uh, but as, as you know, he acquitted himself very well. I guess adrenaline kicked in uh, on that uh, on that Sunday night. And um, every time I see him, though, share a microphone with Paul or John, I think, <laughs> my gosh. <laughs> if they had if they had masks now right they would then they would have worn them uh such as our covid days but um so many so many good observations there from david and and uh it, you know the the paradigm shift is amazing mm-hmm. and and what happens that's so interesting i think in the intervening years is how kids discover the Beatles. It's not any different. They hear them on the radio, maybe they see a clip on YouTube, whatever it is, is the same as those first-generation fans. Um, a fire is lit and mm. uh, they're just in love. I've, you know, I remember the first moment, the first Beatles song I heard was Help, and I was I was done. <laughs> you know, it was, where has this been? Uh, uh, or one of my favorite quotes is from a good friend of our university, Steve Van Zandt of Bruce's Band. Mm-hmm. And I had asked him about when he first heard, I want to hold your hand. He was in a in his bedroom that he shared with his brother and they heard the song and they didn't know what to make of it. They just looked at each other and began laughing with pure joy. And I think that's what the yeah. Beatles are doing right now for some kids who mm-hmm. aren't even thinking about this being the anniversary of the Sullivan week. Right. They are going to reverberate for as long as people have ears and listen to music.
1: Got a couple great texts. The Beatles on Ed Sullivan was electrifying. I was eight and I fell in love with the music and all the Beatles. The next day in school, it was all I talked about. I still remember those conversations and how thrilled we were. We eight-year-olds were smitten. This text says, my grandfather was the vice president of Pan Am at the time and walked down the stairs to the plane behind the Beatles on that first visit. There's video of it you can watch on YouTube. It remains a really fun family story. That's amazing. Uh, let's talk to Mark. <laughs> Mark has another angle. Hi, Mark.
2: Hi. Can you hear
1: me? Yeah, you're on the air.
2: Oh, great. Um, yeah, I was, uh, I was eight at the time also. I was just doing the math. And um, I was asleep, and my mother came in the room and woke us up, me and my brother, and said, "You you have to get up. The the Beatles are on TV." And uh, I I woke up and I was up and I went to the living room and we're watching the TV, and I was disappointed because they weren't real Beatles. <laughs> so, <laughs> and um, they, what's wonderful about this is that. Here we are, I'm 68, my mother's uh, 88, and, uh, you know, we're, we're pretty old now. And But we look back, and my mother was so young, my father was so young, mm. and, and we were so young, and it's, um, it's a perfect moment. And it's a chance for me to, to, to think about that yeah. and reflect on, on that wonderful time.
1: Mark, thanks for sharing your story. Gave me a chuckle. Let's talk to Jean from Manhattan. Hi, Jean. Thanks for calling. All of it. You're on the air. Hi, Jean. Are you there? Oh, I don't know. Jean, can you hear us? We'll see if we can get Gene back on. My guest is Ken Womack, professor of English and popular music at Monmouth University, the author of many books about the Beatles. He also hosts a Beatles podcast, Everything Fab, Fa- Fab Four. I wanted to follow up on something that uh, uh, David, the professor, mentioned was the look of the Beatles, how they looked, and why was that so so rad?
3: Well, remember this is uh, the America's post-war America of the crew cut, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, gender was uh, far more specific than we can even imagine these days, and uh, the Beatles were wearing their hair uh, by a lot of standards, distastefully, <laughs> distastefully mm-hmm. long. Although, as as David pointed out, you know, it, it well, of course, by today's standard, it's nothing, uh, but it seemed very radical, and the press came at them pretty hard in that Pan Am press conference. Mm-hmm. Um, But what's fascinating to me, and it's such a good lesson for our students and everybody, is how the Beatles used humor to turn that pretty ravenous press into allies. And it was so important. There's wonderful footage in the Beatles anthology of of the Beatles riding down on the train to Washington, D.C. for their first concert at the Coliseum. They're right in the heart of the press, and Ringo is clowning for the cameras. He's got all their their cameras wrapped around his necks, clowning for the reporters, winning them over. And why does this matter? Well, one, it helped them in the short run. But two, they're going to have some problems, right? I mean, there's going to be uh, the issue of John saying the Beatles are bigger than Jesus a few years later Mm -hmm. and the fallout. And then, well, maybe he's going to have a cover uh, in the nude with his his wife, (laughs) Yoko. Right. I mean, there are going to be moments that they need a good press to help uh, fathom and withstand. And they had a wonderful press. The press loved them. They had great access and it really made all the difference and is a key part of their success.
1: Real quick. Let's take one last call. Christine from the Lower East Side. Hi, Christine.
0: Hi. Hi. Well, you know, my dad worked for Westinghouse, and he did all the lights for Idlewild Airport. So he knew how beetle-crazy I was. So he, I, a couple of my friends, we were, all went up to the VIP room where the Beatles were supposed to have their press conference. But because of the chaos, they skipped the VIP room and did the press conference downstairs. And we, we saw them deplane, and we were pressed against those big, huge windows at Pan Am and just screaming
2: and crying. And, you know, my dad was horrified. But I was so, so thankful for him for doing that for me.
1: Thank you so much for calling, Christine. Thanks to everybody who called and texted us. We couldn't get to everybody, which tells you how popular uh, the this, this time was, how popular this memory was for people. Also, huge thanks to Ken Womack, professor of English and popular music at Monmouth University. Check out his podcast about the Beatles, Everything Fab Four. Ken, thank you so much.
3: Oh, thank you. This has been a great joy.